0: Hello everyone, this is Ron Small with episode 8 of the podcast, which you can find on SwayProductions.com and on iTunes. Thank you everyone who's been uh, sending emails and, and messages on Twitter. I, uh, I don't use Twitter much, but, but I've been meaning to use it more. Someone uh, tweeted out, and, and by the way, I feel like a jackass uh, just saying that, but, uh, but they tweeted uh, that they were looking for me on Twitter. And I didn't see that until I noticed uh, Stu Mashewitz had uh, had retweeted that message. And then I retweeted the message. And the guy who initially tweeted uh, followed me. And, and I followed him. And and even, even talking about this uh, now as I am, I don't even really understand what I'm saying. But if you're interested in finding me on Twitter and you're having trouble doing so, I'm at SwayProd on there. And if you don't find or, or care to find me, Believe me, you're not missing much. Anyway, I'm going to respond to uh, some emails of yours. Uh, I'll be doing that after the interview with the uh, wonderfully charming, talented, and and very youthful Peter Atencio. If you don't care to hear me answer uh, some emails, then uh, feel free to end the show after Peter's interview. Peter Atencio has been a director of short-form comedic web videos for places like the now-defunct Super Deluxe website, which paved the way for the very popular Funny or Die, for which Peter has also directed some content for. Peter's work in web video has led him to directing all eight episodes of the acclaimed Comedy Central sketch comedy show, Key & Peel. Which, by the way, congrats to Peter. After the taping of this interview, the show has been renewed for a second season. The show is really funny, uh, very uh, cinematic in the way that it's shot uh, and directed and it sort of picks apart uh, racial comedy and perceptions of race. You can see the full episodes on Comedy Central's website or on Comedy Central itself. Just check your local listings for that. I kind of sort of worked with Peter uh, over the phone a couple years ago. I hired him to do a video job for me, uh, which I opened the interview talking about. So you and I actually have a, a bit of history together. About three years ago, I used to work for a shitty marketing company. And I uh, I was the production manager and I hired you to shoot and direct an electronic press kit for a musician.
1: <laughs> I I know exactly the job you're talking about. Wow. I, I had forgotten all about that. Wow. Were you happy with that footage? <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. I was extremely happy with that footage.
1: <laughs> what was her name again? What was the artist's uh, name?
0: Uh, Angela Luna I believe was her name. Yes, yes. Yes. She's very wow, powerful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Man, that's funny. Yeah, I my my uh, my best friend uh Jason um helped me on that and he is um he was just like helping me PA on that and he now has a an animation series deal with Fox. So clearly that job led to <laughs> Great
0: things. For both of us. I wonder what she's up to. I don't know. If she's doing I don't as well.
1: know. Maybe. Hopefully, she's running a small country somewhere.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Highly unlikely, I think. But but who knows? So uh, let me ask you about your influences, uh, because you're you know you're known as a comedy guy, but judging from your blog, which uh, people can find at, at PeterTensio.com, dot com, it seems like the films and television that really inspire you tend to be more cerebral, dramatic, stylish, uh, and not very funny. Um, is that the case? And, and if so, how do you find yourself being so drawn to comedy? Uh,
1: that's, that's definitely the case. That is, um, that's absolutely true. I, I guess I like doing comedy because comedy is kind of the one area where I get to play in, in all the genres. I really love, um, different genres. I kind of love different approaches to storytelling. And so comedy is kind of the only place that I can really just play and have fun and figure out new styles. And I kind of have my own style now, but it was totally developed through doing comedy. And I, I'm a pretty lighthearted person and I like to laugh and I, I enjoy working in places where I get paid to laugh. So comedy has just always been kind of a natural fit, but in terms of the the types of visuals that I'm drawn to and the types of storytelling that I'm drawn to, it's more often than not um, dramatic. Right, because uh, comedy
0: is, is typically seen as a genre in which the visuals don't really matter too much. You know, A lot of web videos and, and sketch comedy look pretty garish in their presentation, but your uh, web videos and, and the sketches you direct tend to look more cinematic in style, art direction, camera movement, and so on. Uh, can you talk a bit about your approach to that?
1: You know, for me, it's really just it's it's storytelling. And I think that um, I think that a lot of times visuals are kind of underrepresented in comedy because the people who are motivated to do comedy don't care as much or, mm-hmm. um, you know, their primary goal is to be funny, which I think is OK. I think that's what the primary goal of comedy should be. But um, I've always felt like it it's kind of gotten a short stick in that regard. And I think that comedy deserves to be told visually as well as within the context of the writing and so it's just something I've always tried to do and especially with a lot of the things I've done which fall a little bit more under satire and parody and things like that it's always really important to me to have the world of the comedy be as truthful as possible so that the, the comedy itself can really shine through and be that much funnier.
0: And a couple of years ago, you directed a, a low-budget horror feature called The Rig, starring the great character actor William Forsythe. <laughs> yeah. How did uh, the opportunity to make that come
1: about? Um, I was approached by a production company um, who had seen some of my shorts and were familiar with my work. And they were actually working on a Western at the time and wanted to just raise a little bit of capital to kind of get that movie going and attract more investors. And so they approached me and just said, Hey, you know, we'd love you to make a a horror movie and we'll give you like 80 grand. You can do whatever you want. You can write it yourself and you can just, you know, make us a movie that we can turn around and sell for cheap and make a little bit of money and get our other movie going. And that was in October of 2006 and um, within about, I guess nine months they had started developing the script for the little movie. I was going to do in house. Um, one of the producers decided to try his hand at writing and, uh, it just kind of kept growing and growing and pretty soon it overtook the Western as the main company or the, the main, uh, project that they were focusing on. And it just kind of stuck with me. So I was 24 and didn't really know what the hell I was doing, but managed to, um, kind of convince them that, uh, I was the right guy for the job, so just kind of stuck on board for a while
0: right and and you've stated publicly
1: that you you don't think it's a very good film <laughs> it's it is it is not a good movie i will i will one hundred percent go on the record and it is it is not a good movie, but it was a wonderful experience it was a wonderful learning experience. I learned more doing that than I ever learned in any educational institution I've ever been in for filmmaking so sure really an invaluable thing and it, it ended up being something that, you know, it's it's out on shelves and people can buy it and people watch it and so that's, that's really cool to have my learning experience be something that is out there.
0: Right, right. Um, but, you know, I'm curious about uh, at what point you started to think that it wasn't um, a good film. Did you feel that way uh, when you saw the script or uh, was there any point when you were making it that you felt that it could
1: be a movie that you would like um no I I have to say when I read the script I I knew that it was never going to be a great movie um I was under no illusions but at the same time um I don't I I just don't have the capacity to do something half-assed or to not put all of myself into something so you know, I was willing to do whatever it took. And, and I thought, you know, maybe the script's not great, but maybe we can make a really entertaining movie out of it. Or, you know, I can show what I can do in this sense. And it was just, it was an opportunity that I was never going to find anywhere else. So there were certainly times where I was like, God, is this really worth all of the work I'm putting into it? But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's not very often as a young filmmaker that someone goes, hey, we're going to give you $600,000 to make a movie with. So. Right.
0: And how involved were you in the uh, the post production of that? Were you involved in the editing of
1: it, or was? It... Uh, yeah, I, I edited the movie myself. It, it it went through. There was a whole kind of um, I wouldn't say a, a legal battle, but um, kind of a battle of wills between some of the producers after production wrapped, and so that ended up taking about six months to kind of get clear. And when the dust settled, it was just me and the um, one of the executive producers were the only people left uh, on the movie. And so I would go up to his house. He kind of made a little editing suite in his, um, one of the rooms of his house up in Glendale. And Mm -hmm. I would go up there every day and edit the movie. And, uh, he and I worked on, I mean, I was working on other things at the time, but post-production took about two years on the movie. And it was just us and a final cut machine and just kind of working at it and getting it to where we, uh, Thought that it had a pretty decent chance in the marketplace.
0: Right, and what was the uh, response to it in terms of of career wise for you? Did you do you feel like you got anything out of it?
1: I would say um, absolutely zero. Really? <laughs> uh, that, you know, I while I was making it, um, it was so stressful and 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 so in some ways. Uh, just exhausting to be working on one project for so long that I I started doing a lot of short films with um, a group of friends who are in a sketch group at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in LA um, called The Midnight Show and so it was really The Midnight Show shorts that have kind of helped career-wise more than anything I would say The Rig it got me a, a couple meetings with producers and it you know it's it's great that it was uh it made money and it's it's out there available for sale, but ultimately all it's ever really done is said, oh, well, okay, he can handle a budget, you know, a, a little bit of a budget. He's handled a, an actual crew to a certain extent, so it's maybe given a little bit more confidence in my abilities when I've been trying to get work, um, you know, for things like the, for Key and Peele and things like that, but ultimately mm-hmm. I would say it did not really have an effect on the career overall.
0: Now that wasn't actually your first feature, was it? Uh, you did a, a a comedy feature prior to that
1: yeah when I was um, when I was twenty one I was uh, working at a movie theater here in Hollywood with a group of friends, and we all decided so many people are making features. why can't we? And so the six of us um, kind of put our heads together and wrote a script and collaborated on a on a very, very, very low budget um, independent comedy and mm-hmm. uh, kind of took it around to festivals. It was called Night of the Dog. And um again, great, great learning experience, terrible, terrible movie. but um, you know, we were young and we had no idea, and it was really, really fun to kind of see the world of film festivals and we won some audience awards, and that actually helped get us out there and get get our careers started more than anything else we had done up to that point. so it was great. Did that lead to uh, your your work with Super deluxe? um In a a roundabout way, I I met um, Jonah Ray, the guy who starred in all the super deluxe things that I did um, through the movie theater that I worked at. It's it's very strange how this movie theater that I worked at called the the Arclight um, was kind of this central creative hub for young people in Los Angeles, and so I met a lot of really cool people at this theater, and I still see them a lot and keep in touch, and we've just all kind of... Tried to get into entertainment, so we were all just drawn to movies and worked at a movie theater together. So yeah, I, I met him through the same movie theater, and he had, he would seen Night of the Dog and had heard about it, and kind of asked me to be a part of the the Super Deluxe deal, which is what got me started on internet comedy. And how did how did
0: Super Deluxe uh, function? Would they bring you ideas, or what what was the process like for that?
1: Um, it was really really seat of their pants, Wild West. I mean, looking back, it's amazing that they thought they could make money doing what they were doing. They essentially, (laughs) they approached any comedian, so many comedians I knew, and really anyone who had a moderately successful internet presence, or had done YouTube videos, or even was just a comedian that they liked. And so they came to Jonah, And they said, hey, you know, we want to do six videos with you. We'll give you 30 grand and, you know, give us a pitch for what kind of videos you want to make. So he had this idea for this um, series of, uh, of internet videos that are kind of uh, like a a scumbag teaching you how to get stuff for free. And it was called the Freeloader's Guide to Easy Living. And um, he brought the idea to them and they liked it. and, And then he came to me and said, you know, what do you think of this? And I said, well, it'd be kind of cool if we did these as like educational films from the seventies. And so we, um, we brought in another guy named Neil Mahoney, who was the uh, producer and the three of us wrote them together and then sent him the scripts and they approved it. And it was really, it was shockingly easy. It was the first time in my life. Someone had been like, Oh, Hey, you're, you're, you're all right. Here's some money, make some stuff. And just the, the lack of oversight and the lack of, uh, of work that we had to do to get the money was really fantastic. <laughs> so
0: they pretty much just left you guys alone to do whatever, you you just showed them a script and they were like fine go ahead
1: and do it? Yeah I mean they had um, they had deadlines and they had deliverables and they had some of the things that actual companies usually expect of you but it was really very very minimal and the oversight was very minimal. They gave notes but the notes were you know just pretty simple notes and we were young idiots, so we thought the notes were the most offensive things we had ever gotten. But <laughs> compared to what you get doing television, it was nothing. So it was really just, I mean, they ran out of money after a year, so <laughs> clearly it it didn't quite work. But um, at the time, it was great. We ended up doing two kind of seasons worth of shows. We did the, the Freeloader's Guide and then we did a series of standalone shorts for them right before they folded. So not even mm. all of them made them online.
0: Well, it, it seems like Funnier Die has kind of taken up the mantle, though, of, of what they were doing a little bit, and, and yeah. doing it way more successfully.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they definitely, Funnier Die saw what companies like Super Deluxe were doing and said, hey, I bet we could get those kids to work for almost nothing, and <laughs> have done extremely well with that model. So Right. Right. Same basic what... concept, but way lower budgets.
0: So some of the videos that you've done for the Midnight Show have have gotten uh, really big online. Have gotten a, a lot of views. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the Drive Recklessly video that you did recently. Now, is that ever a um, a thought with you guys when uh, when you're making them, as to to kind of tailor them to what might uh, get a lot of views or get a big audience?
1: Um. I think it's 50-50. I think, you know, I I think any any writer um, who writes something that they intend to release on a large scale is at least subconsciously writing for a perceived audience. But um, I also think that with The Midnight Show, one of the things I like about them is they're not really too concerned with, um, you know, how can we juice the views, what's the hot topic that we can hit, what's, you know, what's in pop culture. (laughs) their first and foremost concern is always let's be funny. And I really like that. I I don't really respond well to videos that try to hit, you know, buzz topics or just kind of it it, to me, it, it usually cheapens the comedy and it makes it seem a little desperate. And so it's, it's nice to work with a group of writers who are all really funny and that's the thing they care about more than anything else. I mean, the, it's really, it's, it's the closest experience that I can have as a director of being in a punk group because they're all poor. Everyone's working other jobs. Nobody is doing this for a full-time job. I mean, some of us doing it a little bit more now, but, um, at the time when we were kind of doing them more frequently, it was really just like a fun hobby and nobody got paid and there was no budget. And, it was just let's make some cool shit
0: yeah and the the video uh that you made recently to uh, i think it's called want to see something cool uh which is the the one where the uh, kind of gun safety uh, <laughs> video w- which i i love that because it it reminds me of um i have a very vivid memory of when i was younger watching a special on i think it was hbo or or something like that about this uh you know, at the time, a lot of kids were were playing with with guns and 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 shooting themselves or shooting their friends, mm-hmm. and and I remember this uh, this horribly depressing, uh, like twenty minute uh, short film or something that I saw, and it just depressed the hell out of me for days, <laughs> and this brought back like a flood of those memories to me
1: and well, i'm I'm glad we could depress you <laughs> <laughs> no but it's so
0: it's so dark and so funny um and it's just like i a lot of the stuff that that you know that you do with them is like is is really kind of pushing the limit of what you know like how far you can go and still be funny
1: and yeah, it, there's there's definitely an exploration of the of the dark side with that group for sure
0: yeah, and is that a kind of a conscious thing, or is that just like this is your sensibility? This is what you know. This is kind of what you respond to.
1: Um, it's it's definitely not a conscious thing in terms of we're never like oh let's shock people. And I never think I I actually am more often than not turned off by gratuitous violence. But um, if I feel like something can serve the comedy, then it's worthwhile to explore it. And for the for the group. There's always this kind of, like I said, it, it's kind of a punk rock, you know, like fuck the man type mentality. And so that def- definitely does influence the subject material, but it's never like, oh, how far can we push it? It's always the, the idea, the seed of every, every sketch is always what's a really funny situation and, and how can we exploit the comedy? And if gross things develop out of it or shocking things or violent things, it's always at the service of of the
0: comedy yeah and the interesting thing too i think about that sketch is there is like (laughs) there's like such humanity in the guy who gets shot you know like he's just like just take this picture of me with my benjamin's you know i mean it's just like (laughs) there like you can almost feel his kind of like giddy excitement about the you know having this gun like there like there's something there's something going on there that isn't you know that you don't typically see in in that kind of comedy
1: yeah I, i i i do think that um Especially with Calen James, they're the, they're the two guys that I've kind of gravitated towards doing the most stuff with. And, you know, we're actually kind of working on a, a sketch idea for a show with them. But they definitely have this amazing ability to kind of take something very relatable and pervert it just enough to be completely shocking and completely crazy, but still relatable on a human level. And I, I really like that. There's something really exciting about being able to show something like that. like I've shown that video to people who would never watch something like that on their own volition, and they're horrified, but they're also laughing their ass off. And that, to right. me is, a, is a really wonderful thing to witness in someone.
0: So you've directed some online content for the Conan O'Brien show. Tell me a little bit about what those gigs are like.
1: It's, it's fun. It's interesting because that side of the business has really uh, adapted with the whole rise in the internet and, and very guerrilla style, low budget filmmaking. So, you know, I've talked to older sketch directors and there was, I think a uh, kind of a golden age of, of decent resources and money being put into sketches. But uh, now for, for the team Coco stuff, it was very seat of our pants, you know, let's make this work. There's no crew. And it's really fun because you're working for, You know, obviously anything associated with Conan O'Brien is just really exciting to be a part of. And I grew up watching him. And so to have any relationship with that show was was a blast. But it was it was strange because you have the same resources that you're used to working with if you've done a lot of Internet stuff. But at the same time, you have Kesha's manager saying, oh, well, you can't do that. Or she's only available for 10 minutes and you have to shoot everything you need in 10 minutes. And so it's weirdly constraining in some ways, but a lot of fun.
0: So you also directed a like a short film promo kind of thing for the film Year One. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious about that kind of stuff. How how does that come about? Uh, like, did Sony contact you, or what, what's the what's the process of of doing something like that?
1: Uh, those always run through an intermediary, um, which in this case for that was funnier or Die, and so the studios all have these kind of digital uh, marketing teams who will contact you know, funnier or Die or College Humor or any kind of reliable content producer that they know they can trust and give some money to. And they work as kind of a middleman to set up the, the crew and the director and, you know, all that stuff. So I was actually contacted by Funnier Die, and they were like, hey, you know, Sony wants to do this thing for year one, and can you do it? And, you know, so they kind of were the responsible parent or uh, for Sony, watching out for Sony's interests on that. But it was everything was kind of run through them, and then if it went through their filters, it went to Sony, and then Sony had input on stuff.
0: And and what are the typical budgets for for something like that?
1: Very very low. I th- I think on that year one thing we spent, mm, I would say fifteen hundred dollars or two grand maybe. Yeah, it was it was very very low.
0: So you did a thing for MTV um, a while ago that um, I think I saw on your blog. You mentioned that that number one they didn't pay you for it, <laughs> and, and number two they they added in these really cheesy sound effects on top of not paying you for it. <laughs> so uh, can you talk about that experience? Was that where you weren't involved in the editing of that? I take it they they did. Just... I
1: I was, but um, the the sound effects were put in by me because they were forced upon me. Um, that was a that was a kind of a favor that I did for a friend that came back to bite me in the ass pretty hard um, just because it, it was very mutual. I, I give MTV a lot of shit about it, but um, in the end, I was a brat about mm-hmm. it as well. And I was very it was also it was happening right when Key and Peele started going. So my attention was very much not on that project. And so um Yeah, it was just, I don't think anyone walked away from that experience particularly happy.
0: How did the opportunity to direct the pilot for Key & Peele come about?
1: Um, It really, it it was a lot of things that all kind of just happened to work out at once. Um, I had done, you know, obviously a a bunch of stuff for The Midnight Show and for Funny or Die, and so I had this kind of nice um, catalog of, of sketches and stuff and a pretty decent reel. For doing sketch comedy, and um, I had worked with Ian Roberts, who's one of the uh, uh, the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, and he's an executive producer on the show. And he hosted the Midnight Show one month, and we made a video called um, uh, "Siamese Twins," which he has a really small part in. But he kind of liked the way I worked and was impressed with the stuff we were doing, and so. That helped as well as I. I've known Keegan for I'd say about five years. Um, I had done a kind of a, a sketch pilot, I would guess you would say, for um, for MySpace.com back when that was actually a attractive offer on the table. <laughs> right. And um, it ended up not going anywhere, but he was just such a nice guy, and so I knew them and um, my manager, Peter Principato. Uh, was also an executive producer on the pilot, and so he recommended me when they said, oh, we're looking for sketch directors, and we're kind of looking to do something new with sketch comedy. They didn't really, the network was kind of pushing all of these veteran sketch directors who have done tons of sketch shows, but the guys were like, yeah, you know, let's let's do something different. Let's try something different, and um, I had just done a, a pilot for adult swim called hot package that ended up getting picked up and is actually in production right now with a different director doing the full series. But, um, that I was just coming off of that. And that process went really well and everyone was really happy. So all of those things kind of turned into this nice little perfect storm of, Oh, maybe, maybe Peter would be good for it. So I came in for a, an interview, met the guys, met, um, Jay Martell, the other showrunner and, um, met Jordan, who I'd kind of met before, but not really. And met um, Scott Seitz, our our UPM, and had a really great interview with them. And really just, they asked a lot of questions. How would I shoot this? You know, what did I think of the script? How many cameras do I like to use? How many hours did I think it would take to shoot X and Y and Z? And it was great. And I left feeling really good about it. And um, the network wanted a different director, And, uh, so I met with the network and kind of talked to them and they asked the same questions and then the network decided to offer it to the other director. And I waited about two weeks and, um, that guy passed and I was next in line. So it kind of,
0: (laughs) what was their concern with you? Uh,
1: inexperience, youth and inexperience. Mm -hmm. I mean, my manager told me when we were in the process, he's like, you are the most experienced, inexperienced director I know. So I've I've made so much stuff and I've worked on tons of, I mean, I have over 200 short films that I've done and I've done two features and I've worked on television and stuff. And yet in their eyes, I was 28 and hadn't done a damn thing. And so, you know, it was just a question of, Well, God, can we trust? They they were really excited about the pilot, and so it was really they wanted to make sure that it was in the hands of a director who had worked on that level before and had handled all of the pressures and stresses that go along with doing a a show for a big company like that. So,
0: so tell me about during the pilot, what was going on with you? Were you really stressed about getting it right? Uh, You know, like what, what kind of headspace were you in during the shooting of that?
1: Um. You know, it was, really, it was really not bad. The material was so good, and the guys are so talented, and everyone was so nice, and there was just this air of, wow, this is going to be a really positive experience, and everyone gets along, and there was no drama, and it was just great. And so being on set and having that kind of environment, which is the environment I like to work in anyways was really positive. And, you know, there's always little things that go wrong and little stresses here and there, but um, it it really went very smoothly. And then we went into post, and post went very smoothly, and everyone got along, and there was no fights and no egos, and none of the stuff that you're kind of taught to believe exists in the in the television world, and does exist, but just didn't exist on this show. And it was a very, very smooth process i i approached it like i approach anything where i just try to prepare as much as i can and just try to have a very very clear vision for how i want each sketch to turn out and you know i had a great crew and it was it was really fun it was a really good experience
0: do you pick most
1: of your crew or or are most of them given to you um, on, on this, because they were waiting on this other director for so long, I came in about a week and a half or two weeks before the first day of production. So I didn't really get to choose any of the crew. Um, I b- ended up bringing, uh, my DP, my DP was the, the one person I brought on, his name's Charles Papert, um, amazing DP. And he had actually, um, I, I tend to. BDP on all my stuff in the past, and so I worked with Charles on on Hot Package on the Adult Swim Show and had a really good experience with him and just liked his temperament. And in talking to him about, you know, styles that we liked and the way we like to do visuals and the way we like to work, it really just became clear that we worked well together. So when I got the pilot, I immediately called him and was like, hey, I got this gig and I really want you on board. So Same process where the network had to agree and, you know, he had to go in and meet, I think he had to meet with their head of production and tell her how he was going to shoot it and stuff. And he and I had to kind of present a plan for the visuals and things like that. But he was the only person that I was able to bring on board. And luckily, um, Scott, who's our, our UPM, he had just come from the first season of Workaholics. And so I ended up getting a lot of the same crew as workaholics and they turned out to be an amazing group of people
0: and what were you guys shooting on
1: uh we shot the pilot on the canon 1d mark 4 oh wow really yeah we shot uh and i'm i'm very anti-dslr for a number of reasons and um charles came in and was like i think we should shoot this on the 1d and i was immediately like, no 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 no, no dslrs and um, he owned a, a package, which was part of why he wanted to shoot it on that camera, and he took me out and we did some camera tests, and he really convinced me that it actually was going to be a great way to shoot the show. And for the most part, it was. That was the first DSLR body I've ever worked with where I thought, wow, this is actually really good. It doesn't have any of the jiggly motion of the 7D and the 5D, and um, it has a much better camera space a much bigger sensor it's got a full 35 sensor so it was a really really great camera but there were enough issues with it and with the footage that we made the decision to not shoot the whole scene with it uh,
0: what kind of issues like like moray kind of stuff or... yeah
1: big big moray issues um we have the the sketch in the pilot the uh the top chef parody gideon's kitchen um we we went on this set and we had tons of stainless steel. Gary Corden, our production designer, had done all of these beautiful, like, wall panels in the back with, like, the logo of the show and these stainless steel cutouts and all of this great stuff. And we we set the camera up and it was, oh my God, we can't use any of this stuff because it's all going crazy. I mean, it was it was the worst moray I'd ever seen on a camera. So that alone was bad enough. And then, um, it's really, really hard to pull a uh, chroma green key from mm-hmm. that footage. Yep. So we had some green screen stuff and we were able to get it to work okay, but it was really tough on our, our VFX team. So between those two things, that was enough to to disqualify it.
0: So did you kind of look at your DP and get, kind of go, I told you so? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, because I, it, it was issues that I never would have expected and that... It, the more a, a little bit, but even then it was so m- much worse than I'd ever had with any other DSLR body that it would just, it was bizarre. Yeah. Um, and it just happened to be because that set had so much stainless steel and so many like hot edges on stuff that it just, it, it was never an issue on any of the other sets. We had a few wardrobe issues on the ancestry.com sketch, but
0: yeah, by the way, uh, that, that, that sketch is, is so great. It's uh, you know, I was watching the show uh, last week and, and when that came on I thought it was a commercial actually for com. I literally <laughs> thought it was a commercial and I started to skip it and then I saw uh, you know Key in there and I'm like oh, okay well this is part of the show and I went back and it was great but it, it's so, it's so great how you know you, uh, you, you kind of get these to look like like what they're parroting it's like you have um, the Top Chef uh, sketch that you just mentioned looks like an episode of Top Chef.
1: Oh thanks. No I mean that's that is a very, very important ingredient to me, just for whatever reason. I think because, uh, you know, I, I just really respond to stuff that takes the time to make satire that much more real and that much more um, observant of the target that, it's, that it has. So I, I grew up loving my favorite part of Saturday Night Live was always the fake commercials because they were always so well done. And just so spot on in their in their style and in their tone that it really, to me, it made the joke that much funnier. So it's something that we always strive for. And it's it's interesting because on the show we actually have hardly any parody. Um, so it really on the show it actually has become more of, you know, the look and the feel of the world and kind of the the vague genre of the material without being so spot on is saying, oh, this is a parody of this show, and this is, a, this is a, um, a, a fake commercial making fun of this type of commercial. We had two of those on the pilot, and then we have a few more on the rest of the series, but it was a very conscious choice to not really mind that sort of comedy because we feel like that's being done so many other places.
0: So what camera did you go with for the rest of the show?
1: Uh, we shot the series on um, Sony F3s, two of them.
0: And after the pilot what was the response from Comedy
1: Central? Um we felt like they were happy but because it's the the pilot process it's really hard to tell because they don't want to they don't want to build you up too much cuz you just never know and so we turned it in feeling great about what we had done but at the same time you just kind of get this weird non-answer with, with their reaction to stuff. So they're all happy and excited and laughing at the taping. And then you deliver and it's like, all right, well, um, it's April. So we'll talk to you in June after we screen it in New York. So you just kind of say goodbye and shake everybody's hands and hope it turns out. So it's a really, it's a very strange process to be a part of. And then it, you know, it goes off to Vegas and they do focus group testing and you don't know how that goes. And you have to kind of hear through the grapevine, but there's no tangible number that they're looking for. It's just, oh yeah, I think they were happy with how it, how it played in testing. And then they screen it for the for the entire company in New York. They do these twice a year, these big screenings. And um, that's when you really start to hear stuff. And you hear, I, I just coincidentally had, I think two or three other friends who had worked on pilots um, for that round, and you hear from them first that theirs was passed on. So you start hearing, oh, yeah, I heard from Comedy Central, they passed. And so you don't hear anything at first, and it's very, very stressful because you're like, oh, oh my, okay, what, are they going to let us know? What's the deal? And so everyone's calling their manager, and it's all this crazy frenzy of activity for, you know, where are we, where are we going? So –
0: How do you eventually hear that the show's been picked up?
1: Um, I actually, I got a call from Jordan and Jordan called me up out of the blue. I had heard that it was looking like it was getting picked up because they felt like the number that had heard no was enough that they figured what was left probably was getting picked up. And so Jordan called me and he's just like, hey, buddy, they picked us up. We're doing it. Eight episodes. And I mean I was thrilled. I was it was great. And then in, instantly you go from being thrilled to okay, do they want me back? Am I going to get hired? How many episodes am I going to do? blah blah blah. So it's it's really very brief moments of elation followed by the insecurity of wanting to work.
0: Yeah, so it's not typical for a director to do every episode of a show. How did uh how did that opportunity come about?
1: Um that was a very, very long process of convincing uh, that I had to do. I I knew all along that if the show got picked up, I would want to do um, all the sketches. That was always my, my kind of secret wish, was like, oh man, it'd be great to do an entire season of sketch. One, because I really just love doing it and it would be amazing to work on that much stuff, but two, very selfishly going well who knows what other director they would get and if his stuff sucks I don't want to be like oh I work on this show and yeah that sketch that was terrible wasn't mine but that one you like that was mine I hope so it was really I just a- a- as any director does I really wanted to control the process as much as I could and so I actually took Jordan out to lunch um, I think two weeks after they announced that they were picking it up. They were in the middle of um, of interviewing potential writers. And I took him out to lunch and I was like, hey, you know, um, I'd kind of like to do all, all eight episodes worth of sketches. And I think he maybe thought I was joking at first. Um, and then he was like, OK, um, yeah, well, maybe think about that because that would be a, a lot of work. and you know, it may be a tough sell to the network. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And then um, uh, Jay and Ian and and Keegan and Jordan called me, I think about three weeks later. And uh, we're just like, hey, you know, we wanted you to come in. We'd love to have you back on the show. We just kind of want to start the process and talk to you about it and see if you're free and all that stuff. And um, came in, met with all of them, the four of them, and – brought it up again and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I mentioned this to Jordan, but I'd, I'd really like to direct sketches. And they were like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, um, that's, that's nice. Um, maybe, you know, if you have like an idea how you would want to do it or, you know, how it would work. And so we talked to the, uh, the line producer, um, it was Keith Raskin and, um, they were all very, nervous about it and I think they kind of turned to Keith for a logistical or monetary reason why it was a bad idea and Keith was like well you know actually it would save the show some money and it may logistically make production a little bit easier actually and it would be really hard on Peter but it would actually probably be a little bit easier on the show and I think that was the first time they actually considered it and then Um, They kind of casually brought it up with the network who responded with a a thundering no on the whole thing and they thought it was a terrible idea. And they also found out that because of the DGA contract that we're under, uh, the person who directs the live audience segments of the show um, is technically the one who gets the directed by credit. And I had done that for the pilot, but it was not my area of expertise. And the way we did it on the pilot was approached much more like a kind of like a concert documentary almost. It was very low tech and we wanted this kind of grungy vibe, almost like they were putting on a performance in like a warehouse and a camera crew just kind of happened to show up and cover the whole thing. And, you know, we shot it on Reds and it was very nice looking, but it had this kind of, lo fi quality to it, which we all wanted in the network. That was the one thing about the pilot that the network did not like. And they wanted a much more traditional comedy central, you know, big stage and brightly right. colored and, you know, lots of production value. And those are usually directed by live to tape directors who that's all they do is do live to tape specials and, you know, sit at a, a switcher and with a headset on and direct that way. So they were very, very nervous about that aspect of it, and so um, I had to put together, I, I ended up making a, um, a presentation in a program called uh, a Keynote for Mac and did this whole plan of how I would approach the live stuff and why it made the most sense to have me do it and how I would approach the sketches and why it was best to have one director do all the sketches. And I had all these visual examples from other comedy central shows and other stand-up specials and all of this material. And I came in and met with the showrunners and was like, Hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about presenting to the network. Let me do a dry run on you. And I did it. And they were like, okay, we're going to, we'll have your back on this. We'll take you down and to the network and you can give them the same presentation. So I went um, a couple of weeks after that and met with, uh, this is in, I think mid-August, and met with um, Kent Alterman, the head of uh, programming for the network, original programming, and our uh, creative executives, um, Gary Mann and Monika Zelinska, and uh, gave them the presentation and went through it. And they asked a lot of questions. And after that, they were kind of like, "Okay, we'll we'll think about it." And about a week later, they uh, they sent word. They were like, "All right, let's we'll try it. We'll see how this goes. Don't fuck it up." <laughs>
0: So it sounds like a uh, kind of monumental uphill battle just to, just to, just to do, do all this so you can have the monumental uphill battle of actually directing the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. Everyone was like, you know, you are, you are working your ass off in order to get to a place where you're going to be horribly stressed and miserable for about six months. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm after. That's kind of the experience I'm looking for. So they all everyone kind of shook their heads and was like, "All right, you're nuts, but sure if you want to drive yourself crazy, let's do it."
0: So what was that like? What was the production schedule of the show from uh, you know, from shooting every episode to the live content to prepping all of it and and eventually editing it? I mean, you sent me uh in an email exchange exchange you mentioned that you you guys are still uh putting them together days before they air.
1: Yeah, we we delivered the first episode um two days before it aired. I think we delivered the second episode three days before it aired. And this is all. This was always the plan. I mean, the the network, when they picked up the show in June, they said, okay, we want it on the air in January. Um, that's when our shows come back. We'll have new episodes of Tosh.0. That's the slot we want to give you. We're excited about the show, but we want it on the air very fast. And so there was always this knowledge that it was going to be... Insane. I mean, that that just added to the level of intensity for the whole production, because there was always this kind of ticking clock in the back of everyone's minds of, all right, we're going to be really under the gun. So we're, we're actually a little bit ahead of schedule now, but we've just finished, um, uh, yesterday we finished episode four, uh, the sound mix. So that goes back to, to layback and has to pass QC and that gets delivered to the network. Later this week. But um, yeah, for the first two episodes, we were just days in advance and now we're slowly catching up, but uh, we'll still finish out the season. I think we deliver episode eight about a week and a half before it airs.
0: Since it's airing, uh, Key and Peele has, I think, been pretty much universally praised by, uh, by TV critics, which is, is no easy task at all, I think, especially when it comes to sketch comedy. Uh, how do you feel about the, the response uh, that's kind of a stupid question. I mean, you feel good about it, I'm sure. But what, I mean, what, what's what's it been like? I guess just waiting for for the response to come in. Eventually, when it has has come in, do you do you feel like a sense of vindication?
1: Um. Yes and no. I mean, reviews are fantastic, and it's so it's great to get good reviews. I mean, especially after making a movie that was just torn apart by every critic who managed to find a copy in the bargain bin. Um, it, it's, it's really, really nice to get good reviews, but it's way, way more satisfying for me and I know for the guys too, when people who are just hardcore comedy fans approve of the show and like the show. And there's just this there's this community of people who love comedy and especially love sketch comedy. And we're in that community. I mean, I, I grew up loving sketch comedy. It's just something I've always enjoyed and something I've kind of subconsciously knew I always wanted to work in. And once it kind of started happening, it was like, oh, yeah, this feels right. So to have people who like sketch comedy and and like comedy sending us, you know, messages or writing about the show, that's what really is is fun to, to experience.
0: What are some of your influences in terms of sketch comedy?
1: Um... I think my favorite sketch comedy show of all time, as I'm sure many people's, is Mr. Show. I mean, mm. that that to me just took sketch comedy to places where I did not even realize sketch comedy could go to in a certain way. Like, it it really elevated, one, the writing. The writing on that show is just unbelievable. And then the presentation, I mean, they have the, the in-studio sketches, which are a little bit more, you know, just traditional multi-camera stuff. But the single camera stuff they did on that show is really, really remarkable and just really stylistically on point And, and again, elevates the comedy and, and makes the comedy better without stepping on the comedy. And so things like that, I really like, I, I love the original Ben Stiller show. Um, I loved, uh, uh, Key and, P- uh, and Peel um, uh, that's a good Web. one <laughs> Freudian slip uh, Michelin Web is a, a British sketch comedy show that I love um, again it's shows that have a unique perspective shows that do things that haven't been done before and are aware of the importance of presentation um, Kids in the Hall it was mm-hmm. another yeah. huge influence growing up I mean anything where I could see stuff that I had never seen before that kind of just tried new things in sketch. That was always what I responded to the most.
0: And I think the Ben Stiller show for me was the first time I had seen uh, a a comedy show, a sketch comedy show, uh, try to emulate the look of what they were actually parroting. Like um, there was a, a Cape Fear parody in the Ben Stiller show that looked almost like a uh, you know like Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. It, it had a very cinematic quality yeah, that, to
1: it. No. That 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 show is just it's it's amazing what they were doing in 1992 on a broadcast network i mean it's just it's uh, it took it took years for the rest of comedy to catch up to what that show was doing
0: so a couple of the sketches from key and peel were put online uh, a while ago and in, in particular the sketch that opens up the first episode and i noticed that in the online version i saw there's a, a laugh track accompanying the sketch but it but that wasn't the case on the on the show proper uh can you talk about that that decision as to whether or not you know to include a laugh track?
1: Uh yeah, absolutely. That was something going back to the pilot that we we were not always 100% sure that it was what we wanted, but it was something that the majority of us wanted and the majority of us felt very strongly about. I think um as far as not having a laugh track mm-hmm. um and it was really never a question in the guys' minds. It was always something where it was like, well, it's Comedy Central, it's a sketch show, it's gonna have a laugh track, that's just something we have to accept. And then in the editing room, once the stuff started coming together, the guys were like, holy shit, these look like little films. These look like, mo- like scenes out of a movie. They don't look like sketches. And so, is it gonna be weird to have the laughter over them? Is that even right for the show? And it kind of caused this whole big intellectual debate um, just within our creative group about how it was going to feel. And then once we showed them to an audience, when we taped the the live stuff for the pilot and we put the audience laughter underneath, we were all just like, Oh my God, what is, this is terrible. Like it, it just really cheapened uh, so much about the show. And so I would say of the five of us, um, Ian Roberts and I probably felt the strongest against having laughs, and that's just because it it just really graded on us. And then the other guys, um, and really Keegan and Jordan were a little bit more hesitant, only because there is a there's a nice safety net when you have a the 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 audience laughs underneath the sketch, because it really is it's a validation that it's funny. And it's a validation that it's working. And yeah. Some yeah, those of, were
0: actual genuine laughs. It and they not
1: laughter. We did use a real audience. We showed in the the sketches to the audience, and we recorded the, the actual laughs. So we, we we definitely didn't want to have canned laughter. Um, but even with the real laughs, it just it didn't fit the style of the show. And so we talked to the network about it, and the network predictably was very much, no, you got to have laughs. It's a sketch show. What are you doing? We can't even think about that. And... We battled it and battled it and battled it. And finally, we got them to agree to test the show um, with focus groups both uh, both ways, with, with laughter and without on the sketches. And they kind of glossed over that when they picked up the show, which I think they were kind of like, hey, we're picking up the show. Let's not bring up that laugh track issue again, huh? And so they just kind of were like, oh, yeah, well, it tested pretty much the same with both. So we'll use the laugh version because that is a safer choice. And um, we kind of hung our heads and we're like, all right, we lost that battle. And so at some point during the, um, the post process on the full series, it, it really started sinking in. Oh yeah, we're gonna have to put laughter on these things again. And you know, we do some stuff on, on episodes that are coming where it takes that whole concept of making a sketch, a self-contained film, even further, I mean, there's a sketch coming up next week where the guys are um, in whiteface playing, you know, World War II um, uh, essentially, I guess they're kind of escaped POWs or regardless, they're in hiding and they have we have this whole big kind of inglorious bastards esque scene where there's a, a Nazi Jew hunter who's played by Ty Burrell for Modern Family and this is gorgeously shot. You know, movie, I got it in, in scope, widescreen, which is another thing that was never done. So the idea of putting laughter on some of this stuff was just offensive to us. And so we kind of slowly started bringing it up. And I think by the time the network had started seeing um, the edits of the sketches, I really think, I, I hope this is the case, that they kind of started feeling the same way to a certain extent. And so... You know, as part of the process, you get notes and you kind of have little bargaining sessions because sometimes there are notes you don't agree with. And so during one of our kind of bargaining sessions about um, I think they had a change where they wanted to move a certain sketch uh, earlier in the season. And we were kind of going back and forth and they were like, "Okay, well, how about um, if you guys move it up, how about we give you the no last thing? And it, it was like, what's what? What do you mean? Give us the no laughs thing. And Jordan called me. (laughs) I get all my news from Jordan somehow. But Jordan called me late one night. I was still at the office. And he said, hey, man, so they're letting us have the no laughs. And I, I don't think I celebrated as hard at getting the show picked up as I did when they told us there wouldn't be laughs on the sketches. You know, looking back at it, clearly they had somehow come to an internal agreement where they decided it wasn't best for the show to have laughs on the sketches, but, you know, if they can get something out of it and we feel like we we've gotten something out of it, you know, that's a su- successful negotiation. So both sides left the table happy and, but it it was really unexpected by the time it came around and it's, it's one of the things I'm happiest about for the entire show.
0: It is interesting though, the more, um, you know, the, the more we, we uh, see more single camera comedies that, that, that laugh tracks don't really become as as prevalent, you know, it's like, we we don't really expect them as much as we used to.
1: Yeah, it really, I mean, it really is, it's, it's just, I I feel like it, it comes down to what's in style, as well as kind of the development of how humans experience comedy, and we don't need necessarily to have that same communal feeling as sitting in a, theater full of our peers as we maybe once did to kind of get what the television experience is supposed to be. But it's interesting because in the, in the late fifties, early sixties, it was actually out of vogue for shows to have laughter. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of made this comeback that lasted really through the, the late nineties where everything funny had had laughs on it. Right. And then it slowly has started falling out of, out of fashion. Like you said, with the rise of single camera stuff. And I really, to me, the Internet sealed the deal because now people are so trained to watch sketch comedy online with no laugh track that the presence of laughter on the sketches now is more distracting than anything else
0: yeah, you know it's weird you, like it it's always felt strange to me having a laugh track there like telling you when to laugh you know yeah. it, it It never felt like a natural thing because it's like I'm not watching this with a group of people, I'm watching this by myself, you know and and I have like this this uproarious laughter. Um, at moments where I won't necessarily be laughing.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's weird, and it's the only time I feel like it doesn't interfere is when, or maybe not interferes is not the right word, but the only time where it feels somewhat organic to the experience is on a show like Chappelle's Show, where he's very consciously saying oh, I'm going to show you something. Let me show you something. And he's talking to the live audience. So when he says, I'm going to show you something, and he points over to the screen and we cut to a sketch, there is a feeling of, oh, I'm sitting in the audience at Dave Chappelle's live show, and now he's going to show me something he shot, and we're all going to laugh at it. So I think people, most people don't even remember that there was a laugh track on Chappelle's show. But it's there, but it feels a little bit more organic because of the way that he did the show. But that was another thing where we were very conscious of the fact that we did not want our live segments to feel like they only existed to throw to sketches. We wanted them – we were we were kind of – I wouldn't say we were forced to make them a component of the show, but it's very much a part of the Comedy Central formula of let's get to know these guys by having them do stuff on a stage in front of an audience. And so we never wanted that to just be like a – Oh, so uh, hey, you know about uh, you know about iPhone apps, right? Well, we made this little iPhone app commercial, so check this out. We didn't want it to have this kind of cheap, like ah, we'll sh- we'll throw you throw you something. So, having that mentality with the live stuff, while also transitioning into sketches where there- we thought there was going to be audience, was a big part of how we planned all that stuff. So it, it changed the way we approached the live stuff once we realized. Oh, we don't have to justify where these laughs are coming from. And to me, that's if you're going to have laughs on the sketches, that's the only way to make it work. But even then, I d- I don't like it. And especially for the type of show we're doing.
0: When is the decision made as to what sketch goes with um with what show? Like like for instance, I I noticed in the in the first episode, one of the sketches uh you know, the the first sketch, there's this uh this really great thing where the, these guys are attempting to gossip about their wives and 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 uh, you know th- there's a bit of a callback to the punchline of that sketch in the Obama anger translator sketch mm-hmm. that that ends the episode. It, is that planned out at the scripting stage or does does it just kind of come about after the sketches are completed?
1: You know, it, it, it is planned out in the scripting stage to a certain degree. On the pilot, we had the luxury of knowing exactly what was going to be in that show because we were only shooting for that one episode. So with a great callback like that, it really worked well because we were able to say, okay, you know, we have this huge sketch called Bitch that we think is going to be one of the more successful sketches, and it's got this really great hook. And we've got this Obama thing, and we know we want that to be the last thing of the show, so let's build a callback into it. So once we started doing the show, um, just because of the way the show is, as well as the deadlines we were working under, we, we weren't able to um, create running orders for the shows during the writing process. It was really just let's write as many sketches as we can and just whittle it down to the funniest stuff and then we'll start trying to put shows together. But that process, because of time and just because of the way it all worked out, we weren't able to start putting the episodes together really until after we were done shooting everything. So we went into production with kind of a rough idea of what was going to go with what, and there was definitely a desire to, to have callbacks and to have, I wouldn't say self-referential, but kind of have things that, if if it works to have it brought up in another sketch to try to figure out a way to make that work but we really couldn't design it as well as we did in the pilot just because we weren't positive what was going to go with what and there was i mean there there was shuff, shuffling in the running orders up through 3 weeks ago you know we were still moving sketches around and trying to we really do try to find a a nice balance for every episode of different types of comedy and different types of sketches. And we kind of have all these little criteria internally for the way we build a show. And because of that, and because it happened after editing, we weren't able to put a lot of callbacks into it. But where we can, especially through editing and being able to sneak little jokes in, there's a lot of stuff that people who either are really sharp and paying attention or just fans of the show and watch it a bunch you will see a lot of things kind of in the world of Key and peel that is recurring.
0: You tend to DP and edit a lot of the sketches that you direct. I'm curious, uh, in terms of this show, how involved in all of those processes were you, in the writing, and the editing, and so on?
1: Um, I, I am very, very hands-on, for better or worse. I, I do like to get involved in every aspect of of the process. And I do, I enjoy every aspect. So it was really great. That was part of why I wanted to, um, to direct every episode was so that I could come in during the writing and have input during the writing because it's really, really helpful for me as a director to talk to the writers and one, get an idea of what they were going for and what their vision was when they were writing it, but also to put a lot of myself into it and put, you know, my influence into it and, and, I have a very good idea of how, um, how things should be directed or how things will maybe work comedically. And a lot of times that comes down to parts of my job that usually don't inform the writing. And so being able to be, I was at almost every, um, every the writers have a, a weekly table read that they do of all the sketches that they've written in that week. And I went to, I think every single one of those except for one, just to give notes and give feedback. And it was great because I was able to be here um, unofficially, of course, if you have the DGA, but I was here uh, really from about, I think week four of the writing on, I was in the office. So from weeks four through, I think the writers were here for 14 weeks. So for about 10 weeks before um, the writing period was officially over, I was in here giving notes and giving input and it was it was really fun and so that extended to all aspects of their production I mean I I tend to get very very involved in the visuals of every sketch and every piece of it and I usually have a very clear idea of how I want to do stuff and um you know Charles is great to work with because he's more than open to my input and it's very collaborative and It's just a a really fun part of the process. And so that's extended to the editing and to everything.
0: Can you talk about the budget for Key & Peele, like an episode of that or a sketch even?
1: Um, It's kind of, only because, uh, well, it's weird because especially with a sketch show, you're just never really, there is no per sketch budget, you kind of have an overall budget for each aspect of the production based on the the total budget for the season. Mm -hmm. So you're never really thinking in terms of, oh, how much money do I have for this sketch? It's more, okay, my art department has $1,500 per sketch for art department stuff. And obviously, they're not going to spend all of that on every sketch, but we have to manage it because we know we have some sketches like this this Nazi thing where we have to make an entire period accurate, you know, cottage like German cottage from 1942. And then we have other sketches where there's hardly any art direction and, and it's very minimal props and things like that. So the, the, the overall total budget for the show, um, I can say it was less, it, it put us into the uh, I believe the, the, the low-budget range for television under um, under the DGA contracts, but it was, you know, more than $600,000 an episode and less than a million. And the exact numbers, I will never know because I don't think anyone but our line producer is ever privy to an actual hard per-episode number. But knowing what I know about how much the production costs and just... Managing a budget is, a, is really an essential part of, of directing because you have to know how much money you have to, to play with. And so y- you're always kind of aware of what you have, but at the same time, y- you also don't want to come in too far under because if you come in under, they say, oh, well, you made the show, You made eight episodes for this much, so that's how much we'll give you if we pick you up for season two because clearly you didn't need that other 50 grand. So there's always this desire to not spend too much but also spend enough.
0: Sure. I mean, it seems like even in in a small like like the uh, the the opening sketch or, or one of the opening sketches of the the pilot episode, there's there's this. Uh, it it ends with a um, a shot in, in outer space. <laughs> yeah. And and even that little scene, which is such a small part of the sketch.
1: Well, I I got very lucky. I had a very talented um, production designer named Gary Corden, who um, I got I, I inherited from Workaholics and. Um, Uh, is a great guy and really has a good sense of, you know, the, the, the kind of the mandate handed down to every department was every sketch has to feel like what it really is. They should not feel like sketches. Nothing should be played for comedy other than the performances and the writing. And if there's a funny prop, great, but otherwise it's all very straight and all very real. And so he kind of took that and ran with that. And, um, I'm very, very proud of what we were able to pull off with the budget we have because I, I will tell you, um, numbers-wise, we had about half the budget of a show like um, Nick Schwartz's Pretend Time. So we were always working with you know, 50% less and that was kind of our, we had this very, I, I come from such low-budget stuff that I always kind of have a low-budget mindset and I always try to stretch um, every dollar as far as I can and anything that costs money, it's got to end up on the screen. It's got to be in the in the production value. And so um, you know Gary had I think an average of $1500 a sketch and um, that was his budget and uh, that's that's a very, very low budget for a show like this and a show that, that looks the way that this does and with the number of looks I mean, That was kind of the running joke throughout production was we were all building our demo reels because we've made every look you can think of and we've tried to make them as accurately and as detailed as possible each time. So the the art department really just went above and beyond. I mean, there's there's stuff that you will never see on screen that I wish I could have just shot just to show it off because they did such great stuff.
0: So you've worked with the great Adam Lizagore a couple times, uh, and he was my first guest and has been a topic of discussion on the show a couple times I'm curious, were you ever interested in doing uh doing
1: ads um I was when when Adam asked me to be a part of it, but I got to a place where it just wasn't it wasn't enough um you know it was it's nice to make money and it's nice to be working but I've never really been good at um, – because the whole process is so personal for me and I invest myself emotionally in what I'm doing, it's really hard for me to kind of channel that energy f- to sell a product or to to do something that I just don't really believe in or myself. And so I found myself kind of struggling to to get excited about it or – to, to make deadlines. And it just, it became clear, yeah, my heart's not in this. And so it just wasn't really for me. And so I, I've thought about, you know, would commercials be attractive? And is that something I'd like to get into? And on the one hand, yes, because it's one of the few places you can actually still get a great budget and make really cool things. But on the other hand, it is, it's just, it's hard to get um, invested in it for me. And so I don't know if I'll ever do it or not.
0: Where would you like your career to go in the future or near future?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, You know, I really, my heart is always in, in features. Um, I, I started directing because of features. I still watch way more movies than I do television. And I always try to approach anything I'm working on, no matter what format it ends up being for, with as much of a, a cinematic feel as I, as I can muster. And that's always, so, so movies are re- where I really want to be working and they're really where I'm always kind of like, okay, like this is, this is really fun and this is great, but let's make a movie. Let's do a movie. So I, I think, you know, I think that's just where I'm going to gravitate towards forever until they start letting me make big ones. So we'll see.
0: Would you want to work with Angela Luna again down the line? <laughs> you
1: know, if Angela Luna gets into the uh, Key and Peele sketch, I'll gladly take her. Okay. All
0: right, Peter. Thanks so much, man, for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate yeah, it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And that was Peter Atencio. Congratulations to Peter for the renewal of Key and Peele. Looking forward to that and finishing off the first season of the show. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I'm going to answer a couple emails Delouche, I think, is the pronunciation. Emailed to let me know that I use the word "process" too much in my shows. So the uh, the interesting thing about that is, um, I uh, I don't really know uh, too many good words to substitute that that word for. Um, In fact, I'm gonna pull up a. um, Just bear with me. I'm gonna pull up a thesaurus online and, and see uh, what other options are available to me. So I'm looking at uh, thesaurus.com and I have a process in there. Uh, the, it's a series of actions to achieve a result. Which I could say that. I could say um, how do you go about uh, your series of actions to achieve a result. It's possible that I could take that route. Uh, The other uh, words that uh, that come up as synonyms are action, advance, case, channels, course, course of action. None of these work for me, by the way. Development, evolution, fashion, formation, growth. How do you proceed in your growth? You know, that, that could work in some cases. Manner means measure, mechanism, mode, modus operandi, movement, operation, outgrowth, performance, practice. Practice Procedure. Uh, these these are are getting there for me. Proceeding, progress, progression, red tape. I don't know what that has to do with anything. Routine, rule, stage, step, suite, system, technique, technique. Oh, technique. You know, I might actually put that in there. Technique. I could definitely see working as an alternative to process. Uh, transaction, trial, unfolding, way, wise, working uh yeah that's that's uh let's see if there's something else um so yeah i mean I could see a couple of those potentially working and uh for for you deluche, I will try to alternate between uh between these i'll um i'll make a mental note that if um if I'm about to use the word process i'll i'll try to pause and remember another word that might fit in into into its place so thank you for. For bringing that to my attention, I don't want to use a word too much. I, I know that that can be annoying. I got an email from Chris uh, who, who says, just wanted to comment that it would be helpful if you tag your podcasts with metadata, uh, in parentheses, genre, artist, etc. It makes it easier to find the file on some portable devices. Thanks for putting these together. Yes, I will start doing that. I'm going to start uh, trying to do more uh, in regards to making it easier for people. Uh, and, and that that kind of goes for the opening comment about uh, Twitter. We'll, we'll put a link to my Twitter uh, on the podcast uh, page somewhere, so uh, it'll be easier to find me if you need to. Uh, a lot of a lot of nice comments about the show. I appreciate those. I'm not going to read those uh, because that would be probably boring for people. Before I go, I wanted to thank John Irwin, a wonderful director of music videos and commercials, who sent me a really nice email and left a very kind review on iTunes for this show. I haven't mentioned this before, but I I wanted to encourage you guys to leave a review on iTunes, as it does help get this show out there more and and hopefully lead to me booking some guests that I don't have access to. I've gotten quite a few guests on this show through uh, some sort of personal connection and Jason Wingrove, the wonderful co-host of the fantastic podcast, The RC, which you should absolutely be listening to, uh, especially if you're listening to this one. Anyway, Jason has contacted a few people to be on here, which I very much appreciate. Uh, So please, uh, leave a review, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy, I mean, maybe even a word, you know, like, uh, think of one word that sums up this show for you, and, and, you know, I wouldn't even be insulted if it were a bad word. And that's going to do it for Episode 8 of the Spotcast. You can find this and all the other episodes of this show at SwayProductions.com and on iTunes. Feel free to send your questions, comments, and guest suggestions to Ron at SwayProductions.com. And please put Spotcast in the subject matter. This is Ron Small saying goodbye.